Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's organic chocolate. Sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Well, it's been a while. The last time Roshan and I were together on here, she was full of plans and worried about people. And I, to be honest, was just worried about people. Friends had just been laid off work with hundreds of thousands of others. And I was really fearful for dear ones of mine who had underlying conditions, facing into that great unknown. I never thought we should be learning a language or how to make sourdough during lockdown, unless that kind of distraction was essential for your general well-being, of course. I think most of us have enough going on in our lives, though, without putting additional pressure on ourselves. Though I have a young friend in the neighbourhood who perfected sourdough after many attempts. I can't believe how faffy it is, but the bread was a triumph. So that was a win-win. But in short, I did nothing in the lockdown. My attempt to clean a highish window resulted in a crashing fall off a ladder. And after nearly three weeks of thinking my right arm felt a bit awkward, I went for an x-ray and it turned out I had a broken elbow. And then went round for weeks a big cast in my arm, feeling pretty damn foolish. But the most wonderful thing now is that all the people I was fearful about have come through safe and well, and I hope yours have too. The arm is cast-free and I'm packing for a week in Kerry with First Daughter, where I plan to sit in as many lovely little cafes and restaurants and pubs as possible, leaving Second Daughter in the home gaff with her improvised studio along with three dogs and a cat for her troubles. And when I return, I'm looking forward to getting back to interviewing some people who really interest me, such as the monumental Anne Enright. That will be during the Irish Times Summer Nights Festival of Debate, Discussion and Distraction, beginning Monday the 13th. And I guarantee you that somewhere in that four-night lineup, you will find a fantastic array of people from film, music, books, sport, beauty, economics, architecture, to feed all your summer needs and make you laugh and think and effortlessly stock your brain. But back to right now and what Roisin's been up to. On Saturday night, the women's podcast hosted the seventh big night in on Zoom with Senator Lynn Ruan in conversation with Roisin, two dynamos in action. Along with her re-election to the new Shannon, Lynn is an activist, an addiction specialist and is also completing her Master's in Creative Writing. You're going to hear her speak about class, parenthood, politics and what she's learned from lockdown. Roisin hosted the night, of course, while on her holidays in Lahinch, County Clare, so we're really thankful that the Wi-Fi held up. We know you're going to enjoy this one. Here she is, Senator Lynn Ruan. She's a force of nature. She's a senator. She's a mother. She's an activist and she's an author. And I'm so pleased that she's joined us on the big night in tonight. And she's coming to us from Fermanagh. So I suppose, Lynn, you better explain to us what you're doing in Fermanagh, first of all. 
yeah so I am I never traveled much around Ireland so I'm trying to just embrace the fact that we should be you know spending a lot more time at home at the minute and I'm just going to explore as many counties as I can over the next few months and I wanted to do a walk you know the stairway to heaven there's another name for it an Irish name that I'm not going to try and pronounce right now so we were out myself and Paul were out doing that walk today and we just said we'd stay another night and, uh, and drive home tomorrow Brilliant. I'm really liking your headboard there. It's giving me very Fifty Shades or something. Very pinky, isn't it? <laughs> Black leather. <laughs> Listen, there's loads of people on here who will know your story very well, who will have read your book, People Like Me, which is brilliant. Um, but there's other people who might not be so familiar. So would you mind doing a little potted history of your life so far? I will. And I'll try and keep it as concise as I as I possibly can. Um yeah, so like for people that don't know me, I'm from Killinarden in Talla. I grew up there. My my mom was originally from the north side, so we were in Ballymun very briefly when we were babies, and then we've been in Talla ever since. I I suppose it to, to fast forward a bit, I suppose my life was pretty normal as a as a kid. I was um I loved football, I'm a big Man United supporter, quite a tomboy, um, loved hanging around with the lads, um, was always a little bit maybe cheeky stood up for myself a lot like so the characteristics now that I get praised for weren't praised so much in school you know so ask constant asking questions standing up for myself challenging things they were all things that weren't <laughs> weren't really welcome I suppose in the classroom as a kid and they've been reframed now as activism which is great because now I get to put a positive frame on my my constant uh, pushing of things but um so school in in secondary school was it wasn't really great for me Growing up in Killinarden, there was a mixture of having this amazing community with a huge sense of loyalty and friendship and everybody wearing each other nearly. And, and you know, you were so close to your neighbours. But obviously there was also a lot of deprivation as well that, that impacts us massively. And, and that kind of had a massive impact on my life very young. I became involved in, in taking drugs at a very, very young age. Um, I was probably 11 when I first um, started trying different drugs. Um, I came from a family that there was no addiction or understanding of drugs in. Um, my my father was an All Ireland football player. He, I mean, he didn't even have his first sup of alcohol till he was in his forties. So I came from a family that didn't really know what to expect in terms of then what I was bringing into the household. It was um, quite a shock for them. So I suppose a, a lot of my life went under the radar a little bit with them because it wasn't something that they had an understanding or awareness of. I had my daughter Jordan when I was 15. So I was I was very young. I didn't think I was that young then. I actually thought I thought I was really mature and really old. <laughs> and now I look at my kids when they hit them ages and I realize I I wasn't I was I was only a baby. But I done what I could um and I um, I was hugely supported by my family and by my community and after I had Jordan I went back into education. I had left school. So I went back into education in a place called Onkasan and Tala, which I was there for two years, which was a really, um, I didn't realize it at the time, had a massive impact on um, giving me some level of safety so that I could have some level of safety in my life so that I could be still enough to at least think that I could have a future and a life and there was other possibilities. So from there then, I realized I wanted to work in addiction and I can see Mary Ryder on my screen there. Hey, Mary. So Mary was the chair of the Canals Task Force when I started in Bluebell um, in 2007, actually 2007. 
so I worked in addiction from around 17 years of age. I worked with young heroin users. I worked then developing services in Bluebell. It's now come full circle. I'm actually now the chair of Canals Task Force, which Mary was the chair of uh, <laughs> back then, which is great. I had lots of great mentors. So I worked in the field of addiction and homelessness for about 15, 16 years when I decided that I wanted to increase my level of education. Um, I felt I was good at my job, but I definitely felt um, that I needed something more in terms of being able to articulate myself in a way that I could be heard, that I could create change. So I went to Trinity through the Trinity Access Programme because I didn't have a leave insert, um, so I couldn't go straight into Trinity. So I'd done the Access Programme, which is an amazing programme, to help early school leavers or people that maybe don't have, um, you know, haven't been in the education system for a long, long time to give people a route into education. While in Trinity, I studied a degree called PPES, which is a degree in philosophy, in political science, in economics and in sociology. While I was there, I ran for the Students' Union, not because I had any real understanding or interest in student politics, but I was interested in activism and politics in the communities which I'm from and Trinity is another community and I felt that I could apply some of my skills in a different way um, and be, I suppose it wasn't really the done thing for a, a, a single mother from Tala with, with no with no leaving there to come in and be the president of the Students' Union and I was really encouraged by a lot of people in Trinity to start moving into those spaces. I, I done that. Me and my daughters lived on campus for a year which was amazing. It was an amazing experience for them because they got to really feel like Trinity was their own. It was their front garden. They got to sneak into lectures. My daughter used to sneak into, um, at 14, my eldest daughter, Jordan, the one that I had when I was 15, used to sneak into English lectures while I lived in Trinity. And she is now just about to start her third year of her degree in Trinity English and Film. Lynn, you're doing brilliant at your potted history, but there's something I want to ask you because... I think about people, people like you, if you want to use the title of your book, walking through that arch in Trinity. You know, I think that's why when I saw the article about you, I found it so moving that someone like you or from Tala and single mother and all that had had kind of been supported in that way to be to, to rise up to be the president of the student union. But I'm really interested in what it's like to come from the background you come from with the with the struggles and the sort of you know, the challenges that you faced to come into somewhere like Trinity because we've all just watched normal people. And that was a particular view of Trinity, which we'll get to later as well. We'll talk about the sex and all that sort of stuff. But um, what was it like for you walking through that arch? And, and what kind of sort of, what did you face, I suppose? I suppose my experience is quite different to a lot of um, working class people that have gone into Trinity. Um, I had a really positive experience and maybe that's because I was really determined in the agenda and the goal that I had, where some of my friends who come from similar backgrounds have also gone through Trinity and actually felt it was a really difficult process for them or they, you know, comments were made to them where they felt like they didn't belong or, you know, they couldn't make friends. They just felt like um, there was a world of differences between them and and what was happening. And, And sometimes when you go into an academic institution, like Trinity, it feels like you're learning a whole new language from scratch, whole new language, you know. But I had learned from a very young age, um, maybe maybe it was my dad, because he used to teach me how to spell, and my mom taught me how to read when I was only two. So I was well able to explore the English language, even if my English language only took me so far, I at least wasn't afraid of it. 
So when I went in, I wasn't as intimidated as some people describe their experience being because I I wasn't embarrassed to ask questions. I wasn't embarrassed to say when I didn't understand something. I, I, I didn't mind stopping people and asking them what, what the word was that they were using and could they explain it to me so I could understand the rest of the sentence that they had used, you know. And sometimes actually asking someone to uh, give you a definition of the word they just used, they don't even know themselves. Like, it's like they've learned how to put these words in a sequence, in a sentence. Well, that reminds, them. do you know what that reminds me of in interviewing John Bamble once? And uh, <laughs> I, I picked out a load of some words from his books and one of the words he couldn't remember what it meant. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, so people, some some people's language and the language they get used to hearing at home becomes second nature to them, where they never even think about the meaning behind the words that they're using. So I think even me asking constant questions turned out to be a positive for others as well, because they had to actually stop and think about, well, what do I mean when I say this? You know, so me going into front arch, of course, there was times I was shaking inside. I felt vulnerable. I felt like I stood out, but maybe it's something just about. The, the skills I had developed working in the addiction sector for all those years, I was used to working with people. So I just tried to apply the skills that I had developed in the community sector into the space in Trinity. And it worked well for me, I think. But I know people have had varying different experiences. So And, and, and then tell me about politics. So you're in student politics, but then you almost go straight in really to you know national politics and to, to being a senator. Tell me about that then, because I think it's fair enough to say, again, you were a little bit of an unusual, unique person in our national parliament. It's it's a quite a um, specific type of person that gets in there, right? Yeah. Um, again, it was encouragement from actually young men, young middle class men in Trinity kept nudging me forward you know and you would think that because I, I I also am in a political career where I give out about middle class white men and they're being politicians but yeah <laughs> you know but that's the thing when they were already in a privileged position I wasn't a threat to anything that they were doing you know and and they they were like Lynn we really think you'd be good at this we think you know and and but that's the thing that's wrong with politics as well I wouldn't have decided to do that myself like so it's like women politicians had to be urged on or supported by somebody else to do it rather than them going, this is something I can do. I'm going to run for that, you know? And I think that that's just a symptom of the lack of women in politics in the first place. But they did support me in making that decision and they supported me in running the campaign. And I suppose going to the Senate was, it was scary, but history had shown me that I learned very quick on the job and that I know that I have heart for the things and the people that I care about. And I know that I could take that into the policy development. And even though I hadn't a clue what I was doing, like, I mean, when I got elected, I was like, so like, how do I be a Senator? <laughs> like, how do I be a Senator? What am I, like, I'm an actual Senator now. Did like, you Google it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how to be a Senator. Well, again, I always bring the, this stuff back to my experience of community development. And if you can bring people together and if you can listen to other people and if you can include as many people as you can in the job that you do, well, then you can't go too far wrong. You know, I, I think some people as politicians are independents. They think they think they have to know it all and then try and create something but not actually talk to the people that understand it more than you. I have a particular skill set, but 
what I'm good at is finding other people that are better than me at particular jobs and bringing them into the fold, you know? Mm -hmm. So actually facilitating wider conversation and being really having an understanding of what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we have too many people that they, they want to, they want to do it on their own, whether they've something to prove or whether they don't want to share the credit of the work, you know, so they, they keep it to themselves. But in the Senate, I just wanted to be able to bring as many people in to help me do my job as possible. And that really just all my skills, I think, as a senator come from my experience as a working class community uh, development worker. And I think that I've just brought them into that space. Uh, Lynn, one thing I always think is really interesting about you and just from knowing you a bit personally is the fact that you went in there and the sort of different allies you made were maybe not allies that I would have been very surprised. And sometimes you'd be telling me people that you were working quite closely with, people I might have had, you know, negative feelings towards and be like, what are you hanging around with them for? But you were, what I think is what you've got a real gift for is spotting the people that you think will be able to help and leaving aside that kind of bias or prejudice that we build up over time can you tell me a little bit about those alliances and um you know about that kind of ability to to sort of just not come from such a personal place all the time and just want uh, it's very pragmatic I think what you do uh, what yeah. was it like in that way you found yourself I wouldn't say in bed because that's like to do with the, the board behind you again you know aligning yourself with certain people that you might have been surprised by yeah I think um I think to get a job done, if you isolate yourself, I mean, what what am I in there for? What am I doing? Collecting a wage, turning up, clocking in. If I'm not willing to find real openings to make something happen. So like my spend convictions bill, for instance, you know, um, Charlie Flanagan, Fianna Gael, people would have expected me to go into politics and only be operating from a space of opposition all the time, all the time. And I I don't really understand what the point of me being there is, if that's all I'm ever going to do, is vote down every single possible thing that I can. I'll always vote down the things that are problematic, <laughs> but you have to be able to maintain and build relationships, you know? Like some days I go in there and I don't talk to some of the politicians about policy. I talk to them about their favourite football club. I ask them how their children are, you know? I, 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 you know, talk about Sligo Rovers to whoever's from up that direction, you know? And you build relationships and you build relationships. And through the building of those relationships and getting to know people as humans, you begin to learn that you may have political differences in many instances, but there is going to be some things that you cross over and align on. And if you're going to set your stall out from the beginning that I don't want to know you, I don't want to talk to you, you're not like me, you don't care about me or the people that I care about, well, then you're never going to learn what those similarities are. And it means that you're never going to be able to progress or be able to work with those people to move it through the system. Whether I like it or not, I'm not in power. Whether I like it or not, there's no social democratic parties empowered socialism is not so I have to operate within the system that I'm presented with and that's why I work hard to build those alliances and work with people and build friendships you know so that when I got my spent convictions legislation to it's moving to the last stage now of in, in the Shannon I'm able to to ring the you know Charlie in the justice department and say 
listen, oh, I really want to amend this. Can we sit down and discuss this? Because I don't want to just surprise you on the Shannon floor and you're not aware that this is what I'm doing. And then we sit down, he brings his officials, we tease it out, we flesh it out. So that by the time it gets to the Shannon floor, you're not in battle. You've actually mm. been working for two years behind the scenes building research, building understanding and bringing people along. And mm. for me, that's why I, I build alliances. You know, I don't want to at some stage leave politics and go, I never achieved a thing, that I never achieved anything. I just went in and I just fought and fought and fought and never actually found other ways and solutions to, to get stuff done. And I've got, I've won so many amendments to legislation, something that I told, something that I was told would be impossible as an independent senator. I was told it was impossible. What are you doing becoming a senator? They can't get anything done. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, now we're entering a very different looking Shan at this time where there's a big block. So oh. <laughs> I might have no alliances. <laughs> time. Well, someone's just asked, would you run for a seat in the Dáil actually? Just while we're on that subject. Yeah, like, I mean, I'd, at this minute, the doll is not something that um, I want to run for because I very much, I don't like parish pump politics. And we're seeing a lot of that with all the, the moaning about I didn't get a ministry and I didn't get a ministry and I didn't get a ministry. And, uh, you know, at, at this rate, Crumlin Shopping Centre is going to want a ministry. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, um, so... But that's that's real, um, really showing where people's minds are at, that you have to have a ministry and have a department to be able to represent your your the, the, the geographic space in which you are voting in for. And that that that's not right because we should be national politicians. We should be working on national issues and we shouldn't be completely driven by our local vote. And the position I'm in now with Trinity is Trinity is a particular, I don't know who votes for me. I don't know who they are. They don't call me. They don't ring me and say, what did you say in this time? Never voting for you again. You know, I don't know who they are. And there's a huge privilege that comes with that because it means all the work that I do is coming from me, from the things that I care about. They're very working class issues. You know, I do a lot around addiction. I do a lot around spent convictions so people with minor convictions and trying just to just while you're on the spent convictions Lynn someone has asked and I think maybe some people will be wondering because it's not something you've really brought it to the fore but just explain very quickly about spent convictions what you were trying to do there so in Ireland it, we got our first spent convictions law in Ireland in 2016 so we were one of the last European countries to have a spent convictions legislation which is basically the expungement of a person's convictions but that excludes stuff that's in like the, 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 the high court. And, you know, so you're looking at the district and the circuit. So it's minor conviction. So um, it's not um, sexual violence. It's not uh, murder. You know, th th those operate outside the conviction. So it's all the other convictions. So basically in Ireland, you can only have one conviction spent. If you ever get more than one conviction, it's on your record for the rest of your life. You will never travel. You will, won't be able to study certain subjects. You won't be able to study, say, social work, psychology. You won't be able to work in particular fields. You won't even be able to volunteer in some instances with your son's GA team or your daughter's football team, you know, because everything is guard vetted. And the position that leaves us in then is that we're telling people when they're in court, 
we're giving you 12 months for the theft of whatever, you know, if it's for theft or whatever the charge is. But when you do that 12 months, we are going to punish you for the rest of your life. We are never, ever, ever going to take that boot off your back and we are going to keep you down. And yet we say we have a rehabilitative system, that our prison system is rehabilitative. Well, society doesn't meet that on the way out and you're kept out. You know, you can't even sit on, like, you can't even sit on a board of directors. Like, take, look at prison. Like, so there's loads of organisations that work with with prisoners and people coming out of prison. The best people to be on a board of directors are people that have come out of prison, you know, but yet they can't sit on it because they have a conviction, Mm. you know. So basically what it does is it just stops people being able to actually move on with their lives. And and when I started working on this bill, I was getting calls from men and women that were in their 40s and 50s that have been stuck for years. They might have got two charges for, say, possession of cannabis or something when they were like 19 and 20. And now they're in their 40s and they can't apply for particular promotions because the next stage of the promotion is uh, is, is guard vetted or some of them want to go back to college to study. Um, I've had to fight for at least three people in the last four years to be, to be able to stay in college to study social work because they, nobody would give them a placement. So okay. when, when you go on to social work and then you have to do like your hours in a placement, you're told, no, you have a conviction, you know? Mm. And so it's just trying to make that system um, much more open so that people can actually uh, actually get on with their lives. Yeah. Like, well, like, I, mean, if you're not I have to agree with someone who just spoke there. Anne Ellis says you're brilliant. And there's a lot of people saying that. And somebody saying you should be earning a fortune as a motivational speaker. So maybe that's a little <laughs> sideline you could be mining. Listen, I want to talk to you about your life in lockdown and kind of where you are at now. But just before that, I mean... I'm just looking at your tattoos there, right? Because you can see it a little bit. Give us a look. Was that a problem in, you know, Leinster House? Because, you know, there's a certain dress code and there's people who are very into that kind of thing. They got they got used to it. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, like there was one or two comments. Um, less about my tattoos, actually, and more about my, like, Nikes on my feet. <laughs> so if you ever see me talking in the Shannon on the news... I'm all business up top, like, but I'm tracksuit bottoms and runners on the bottom. Like, I'm business on top, runners on the bottom. That's what we're all like now. We're all business on top. Exactly. (laughs) Everyone knows it. Yeah, but um, I found it really hard in the first, Shannon, when I first started, because I was as brave or as out there as I come across. I obviously am human and I have to push past a lot of fears. And I was very, very frightened about how people would look at me when I first got up to speak. What would I wear? I thought so much about what am I going to wear? I'm after trying the pantsuits. I've tried the dresses. I've tried the heels. And they actually pain my body. Like It's like I'm traumatizing myself because it feels like someone else's uniform. It's not my uniform. It's not. It's culturally not mine, you know? And I've... It, it, it makes me feel ill to keep going against what I'm culturally comfortable with looking like and wearing and being in my runners and being in my jeans and, and having my tattoos. Out. And when I go against that too much, it actually makes me just not feel very well, you know? So I, this time around, I 
arrived at the convention centre last week for my first day, my Shannon, in my ripped jeans, my knees hanging out and my new snow white Puma runners, you know, um, and it just felt like I had come a whole journey since the first Shannon to just go, just, you know, it's not about what I'm wearing. It's about, it's about what I'm saying. And if you're, Lynn, what about people who might be watching thinking, no, that's not respectful to the office with your ripped jeans. Would you not like have jeans with no holes in them? <laughs> I don't understand why it's not respectful. It's, it's a very hard thing to like dress code is a very hard thing for me to understand. Like, you know, I really I, I can't get my head around why people would be so like, you know, I think yeah. people's actions, people's actions should be judged more than than, than what they wear, you know. And just on that, just before we move on to the lockdown stuff, I mean, one of the things you were so involved in was the Eighth Committee at the time to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And that was one of the things where I saw you on, I'd, I'd watch it out in work and I'd see the you talking and I'd be sometimes texting you going, oh, look, you, you had friendships and relationships. You saw people's minds change on that, didn't you? Very closely. That yes. was so interesting. And you opened yourself to those people who had very different views to you on that subject. And that really helped, I think. Yeah, like I think... We have to be able to allow people to develop and explore. And, you know, there's so many people that are, say, very dogmatic in what they think, right? But there's a whole bunch of people that are in this other space where maybe they've never had to actually think about it before. Maybe they've never had a conversation about it before. Maybe they've never had somebody come back and forth in a dialogue with them to tease it out. And and sometimes in the beginning, they might put forward an idea of what they think they believe. And then everyone jumps on them. You know, oh, you're this, you're that, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's not how, that's not how you win referendums. That's not how you change hearts and minds. And that's not... You have to allow people to evolve and develop. And like, I've had... I've changed massively since I was 15 you know I've had views at 15 and 20 and 25 that the more I understand the more my mind opens the more people I meet the more dialogue I have that I have grown into a whole new understanding of life and society and and people and gender and we have to be able to afford that same like we all didn't we're, we're, we're all not like cooked from the moment where 15 going like, I know exactly what I think and I'm going to think this for the rest of my life. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just not the case. And I think, you know, the likes of say Ned O'Sullivan from Fianna Fall on the eighth committee, you know, um, just watching him just open his mind and his heart and go, do you know what? I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I am not, I'm going to stand with women and I am going to, I want to repeal the eighth amendment. That was huge for him to do. So big, you know, and he's from a little, uh, like he, he, where he, like it wasn't something that was going to be welcomed and applauded when he got home to where he's from and Lestole, like, you know, like he, he had to push against a lot to do that. And we need to be able to allow people to do that. And we need to make this, we need to create spaces that are safe for people to feel like they can come to us if they actually have, a question and sometimes the questions questions are laden in bias and misinformation but we don't we shouldn't be jumping on them because they've asked a question you know yeah. green and black's organic chocolate a selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity okay now let's talk about lockdown well how has your lockdown been like i mean i'm up in la hinch 
I tried to go to five pubs to get my first pint of Guinness. I was turned away. I felt like I was some kind of, you know, reprobate because they were all busted up. But I finally got my pint of Guinness. It was lovely. Um, so that's the stage of lockdown I'm at now. And um, how was it for you? How are you feeling now? And did you did you uh, learn how to bake banana bread? Did you learn a new language? The ukulele? Anything? Um, no. So... <laughs> I what I done was I'm I'm at getting handed a glass of wine which is great. well cheers Lynn cheers <laughs> they've no Guinness I'm getting told thanks <laughs> it's great to be on your holliers isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> although this doesn't look much different when I'm at home I'm not going to pretend <laughs> um yeah so I think lockdown has been quite interesting for me because. I work obviously with a lot of organizations and groups that their experience of lockdown has been scary. It has been, you know, I, I do you know what? I recognize the, the, the place my life is at now where I could operate in lockdown without fear. And I wouldn't have been able to live my life like that a few years back and being able to recognize that I was safe, that I could sit at home. I haven't sat at home since I'm 14. I sat in my house for weeks, weeks. And my kids were like, when they were getting handed dinner and stuff, they were like, yeah, I've been mad for like, Do you know what I mean? They've been cooking for themselves for years because I've been out walking and going to college. And but <laughs> for me, it's been a really peaceful, it's been really peaceful at home. I haven't been cooking. I was hula hooping and cycling and I've been writing a lot. So I write about a thousand words a day. Um, every day when I open my eyes, I sit and I and I, and I write a thousand words between seven hundred and fifty thousand words, um, which has been amazing for just um, me being able to express myself, but also creativity and all of that. And I've worked a lot at home, so I've been sitting out the back. I done the back garden up. We haven't done the back garden up in years, like so. We actually done the back garden up, um, and I sat at home and I worked and I done done a huge amount of work sitting at home relaxing. And I just thought. What a pri- what a privilege to be able to walk from my back garden, and um, not to have to worry about childcare, not to have to worry about safety within my own home, and it just really it, it I wanted to be able to celebrate that, which was hard to because I know what I know I know that what I'm experiencing now is not being experienced by many people. So I done a lot of work, um, like at the beginning of the lockdown, uh, I worked with the Department of Education to make sure that. Um, school meals um, went out to, to all kids around the country so in the first day of lockdown I rang Joe McHugh and I was like we need to find a way to make the, the school meal system still operate and uh, he called me in straight away with all his officials we had a big meeting and different proposals and fair play to him he act, that's where alliances come in handy you know you can actually be part of the conversation when something is happening and we you know, so I, I was still trying to do little things where I knew there was vulnerable groups um, and I'd I done a bit around domestic violence and and, and I'd done what I could work-wise. But yeah, but lockdown has been kind to me. Yeah. Except you also lost your nanny in lockdown as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that was very difficult. And I think people um, watching this at home will have various uh, feelings about that, of losing someone or knowing someone who has, because... I think, like you said, there's been lots of positive things for many people, but it has been a time of loss. So tell me a bit about your experience of not being able to grieve for your nanny the way you would have outside of this time. 
Yeah. So my nanny Maureen, so she's been she's been at home for about two three years in a in a hospital bed in the sitting room. My 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 poor little granda has been sleeping on a little two seater settee, holding her hand every night. Um, he had hadn't wouldn't sleep in the bed, wouldn't let anybody else. He's been absolutely um he he's been amazing, you know. And so we've been visiting my nanny a lot. My nanny has ten kids, five boys, five girls, and um they're all extremely close, you know. They're they're you know the way with big family sometimes yeah. like, someone's killing someone, you know. <laughs> but uh that's not Yeah, I recognise that, sorry. <laughs> that's not the case with, with my mom's siblings, it's really beautiful. And when we knew my nanny was going to go within the weeks of the coronavirus, we were lucky enough that her wishes to die at home were respected. So unlike other people who weren't able to be with their loved ones, my mom and all our siblings, um, just before the country went into lockdown, moved back into their little house in Finglas. I know, don't make me cry. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like It's amazing. Like The, the, the five buyers in one room, Five girls in the other, living upstairs while my nanny is dying in the sitting room. And I mean, like, you can't not just think that that's the most amazing thing, you know? Like, death is obviously an awful thing, but it can be a beautiful thing if it can be done right. And that's what people are being denied now, being able to do death right, you know? Um, And I think there is a way to do that. And that has been denied to, to so many people at this time. And... You know, just what I done then after that is I'm I'm writing a piece at the minute for um Paul McVeigh. It's it's I don't know whether any of you have read Kit the Walls Common People. So there's an Irish version of that book that's coming out next year, um, edited by Paul McVeigh, and it, he's been working with Kit the Wall on it, and it's called the Twenty Two Ontology of Working Class Voices. So sixteen of us that are published writers are writing obviously for free and giving our time to it so that they can bring in 16 unpublished working class devices that have never um, been heard before. So what I decided to do for that, and obviously I don't want to spoil it because it'll be in the book, but I set up a WhatsApp group between my mom and her te- and the 10 siblings. And I recreated the funeral, a funeral conversation in the WhatsApp group. So I just put in a question about my nanny and granddad. And it just clicked it all. So, you know, when you're at a funeral and you're watching siblings or you're watching loved ones and they're all talking at each other. And do you remember this? And do you remember me ma did that? And da, 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 and they're going back over years and years. And I think that that's how we do grief. We share in those stories and those shared histories and those shared realities and, and that shared love. So I done that in the WhatsApp group and I ended up with 8,000 words in two days of stories. Um, and I have put it all together in a piece. So Brilliant. what I want people to get from it is that as a reader, you're you're an observer watching 10 siblings share right. the most amazing working class stories from Finglas and Cabra since the since the 50s. <laughs> and if you if you're working class, I think especially in housing estates like that, there's like there's a little surprise cameo from Brendan O'Carroll, there's a little surprise cameo <laughs> from Vicky Rock. Like there's so Dickie much- Rock, Dickie oh, Rock. Don't mention yeah. the war. <laughs> Dickie Rock. Rock and Brendan O'Carroll. My my mom grew up next door to Brendan, and they've you know. So when the stories all started, like this was, and then there's all stories of my granddad scavenging in the dumps, and that's where he brought everything home, and everything in the house was made of things from the dump, and it's just it's you know it's just a really lovely um 
it's it's well I, I think it's really lovely well, oh it sounds amazing I can't I can't wait to read it and I just think what an inspired idea because WhatsApp I think especially in this time has been an amazing you know sort of resource for families it's been the way that people have kept together so to use it in that way and to record it it's inspired I think you're brilliant that's such a brilliant idea listen we mentioned normal people um you've written a screenplay yourself like is it is it more sex than normal people different kind of sex what are you talking about are we going to be is there going to be a live line about your screenplay if it's ever made oh I I'd probably be arrested or something to be honest never mind lifeline <laughs> So um, I'm in the middle of writing the screen. So I finished one screenplay, which is not a screenplay. It's a four-part series. And it's looking at um, the vigilante movement through the, the eyes of four teenagers over four episodes in the in the 90s. And then I'm halfway through the process of the one um, that is actually going to be a hard watch for people. So it's 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 looking at um, sex um, of 12, 13 and 14-year-olds and... Um, the experiences that people have had when they've not had access to um, sex ed, decent sex ed in school, conversations around sexual consent. So it will be through the point of view of, of a young girl as she tries to navigate a world where she has no clue what she's doing and, you know, stuff happens within the piece. It's actually going to be a hard watch. It's been hard to write. Um, but it's all based on experiences from from not necessarily myself, but I've taken the experiences of my my group of of friends um when we were when we were in our early teens and I suppose what I hope it does is it creates a conversation of um us t- taking responsibility about how we teach young people about consent and how important it is that um young men and women understand negotiated sexual experiences and what that actually means for two people to be able to negotiate an experience and of course in our heads none of us want 13 or 14 year olds to have sex but we can't start from that starting point we have to start from a starting point where we're empowering young people um to be able to engage um with the conversation and then to be able to be empowered to make decisions from a place of knowing what the yeah. what they're what they're facing into yeah I, I think that's brilliant I think that's going to be really important there's that program I was just talking about it to a friend the other day called I May Destroy You I don't know if you've seen it it. yeah but I think uh, just to say to everyone it's a it's a sort of a series I think it's on the BBC but I haven't seen it myself yet but it it explores many of the things that Lynn's um talking about there listen you're a bit obsessed with Housewives of New York because there's so many facets to your personality what is the appeal of that and and, uh so for me I love I love telly that doesn't require me to think you know that I can just aimlessly just stare at it you know and nothing is required from me you know and like I had a dream the other night I had a dream the other night right that me and Jill Zarin out of Housewives of New York were strung out on Oxycontin together and we were going around stoned on oxycontin with jill zarin from housewives new york like like that's how much it's, i'm watching uh, uh like that even my brain now is is making me think about it when i sleep but i love television like that i mean you get to see all that is wrong with it as well like what people say how people are. but to me people are interesting i love watching the behaviors and the psychology of people and how relationships form and bond whatever about the content and then sometimes like it's good crack and I think sometimes we all like car crash stuff so like when I think some of us watch and go oh my god I can't believe they done that like or said that or you know and I think um yeah so I just I just 
I just like it. Well, I have to, I say that as someone who's recently discovered that there's two series of um, Beverly Hills Housewives and I'm sort of addicted. And I, when I saw that you were interested in the New York one, is that, am I going to like New York if I like Beverly Hills? Is it all the same? I, I, yeah, I've watched a few of them and New York is like top, top of the pop. Oh, okay, brilliant. Okay, um, if anyone's ready to ask Lynn a question. Uh, Hi Lynn, absolutely extraordinary. I'm so glad that I tuned in tonight. I just want to ask you one question and I think this affects yes. a lot of women. Um, it's about imposter syndrome. Do you suffer from it or do you feel that um, any tips for anybody else who might suffer from imposter syndrome? Yeah, I do. Like sometimes I still do things now and I think, Jesus, aren't they all ridiculous for believing that this is who I am? (laughs) Even when I do something good or I show some passion in something, I still question that and I go, are you just pretending? Are you just pretending to care about that stuff? Are you, how have you fooled all these people into thinking you're good at this? Or, you know, so like that's the levels of my imposter syndrome goes. And I have to remind myself that you know, I don't think we can, we put that much energy into things if we don't genuinely care about them, you know, but a, a girl once said to me years ago, and I, when I, I think I was, maybe it was Trinity I was starting in, and she said to me, Lynn, fake it until you make it, and it's a simple concept, and she kept saying, if you don't feel like you belong there, or you don't feel like your value or your worth is enough, every day you need to pretend that you think the complete opposite until they merge into the one and you do know your value, you know, but I think as I've got older and as I've learned a little bit more about who I am and I've done a huge amount of work on myself, like, you know, at a, at a psychological and emotional level. And I think I'm getting better at being able to catch the imposter syndrome as it's happening rather than it, me looking back and going, Oh my God, I completely sabotaged or, or didn't go for that because I convinced myself I wasn't good enough or I didn't belong there. Yeah. So now I just operate in every space like I'm meant to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, that was a great question. Thank you so much. A brilliant answer from Lynn. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering, like, whenever you see clips from the Doyle, it is a lot of fighting and everything else. So I just wondered, was there a moment, a light moment or an amusing moment that you could share from your experiences in the Shannon? <laughs> Loads. I like that. So, and good you me, like I'm good at laughing at myself, you know. Um, I once gave a whole speech, realizing I couldn't say the main word that was in the speech, and I realized after I first tried to talk about it that I couldn't pronounce it, but I had to continue with the whole speech, and it was the word electoral, you know, like the electoral commission. But when I, every time I tried to say it, I said electrical. <laughs> And I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around trying to pronounce the word. <laughs> but like lots, I suppose, trying to, I, I, I don't really know in terms of, I, I think what, one thing I found funny was when Jonathan O'Brien from Cork and the Eight Committee said to Matty McGrath, oh, do you know what, you just mesmerise me. And Matty reacted like he'd got the biggest insult. I don't know if he knew what mesmerise meant, but he reacted like, Jonathan had called him like something awful. And here he was, you apologize right now for saying I memorize. <laughs> I mesmerize you. So there was moments like that where I just thought there's like two people having completely different conversations here and one of them have caught they're all looking at each other. I also one time speaking about period poverty, tried to drop into like I said, and I think sometimes I'm amusing myself and no one else, to be honest, but <laughs> 
um, I instead of saying periods, I decided to use all the euphemisms just to see if the men in the room like looked around. So I said stuff like the Reds are playing at home today, the commies are in the garden, uh, me flowers. So like in the speech, I'm like, and then like me flowers. <laughs> so there's moments like that where I'm trying to just you know bring a bit of light. Um, so there's there's been moments like that. that was the only ones I can think of <laughs> sorry you're cracking me up Sue that was a brilliant question and what answers there oh I'm loving it um <laughs> I have a friend uh, who's actually on here tonight and she calls her vagina her Mary I call her Mary that's what I call her me Mary. oh Jesus Liz. <laughs> that's normal Gwendolyn is it Gwendolyn can you hear oh, me oh hi Gwendolyn thanks yeah. for tuning in yes uh, I'm another one from Brussels so <laughs> Along with Eilish, you said at the beginning. I'd like to ask Lynn where she sees herself or how she sees herself in five years' time. I was going to say, want to, uh, going to ask her about 10 years' time, but uh, where does she see herself in five years' time? Um, I'm going to say in the Auris. <laughs> uh, actually, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> Lynn I, for president. I, I, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I love that. Where's your imposter syndrome now, Ruan? <laughs> rave in the Auris. That's all I keep thinking of. Imagine having a rave in the Auris. <laughs> but um, no, I think um, something I'm working on now is that I'm really trying to develop as a writer and I want to be able to create some sort of, um, whether it's an organization or an initiative that brings the experiences that are not heard in, in, in mainstream. So like there's, I want working class voice, working class men are completely absent from any sort of dialogue, especially ones that come from um, a lot of deprivation and, and travelers. And um, I, want to, I want to develop my writing enough that I can maybe start running some sort of initiative or workshops with people to help them to develop not necessarily they're writing, even if they're not comfortable with writing, but their stories and transcribing them and, and finding a way to publish so many of those unheard experiences in Irish life. And I'm do, like, I'm, I'm one year in, the, I'm one year into, I'm just about to start my second year into my creative writing master. So that's just the beginning of me trying to explore different modes of writing myself. I, I always wrote from a factual kind of setting, you know, from my own lived experiences. But I've started writing the screenplays. I've started writing poetry um, just to try and help me develop in that area. Because I think for us to be able to really improve as a society, we have to be able to understand people's lives and experiences. And I think there's a huge gap there in how we actually get that out. So the working class experiences that we get to hear are from people that have already managed to make it so far. You know, not necessarily people that are experiencing life at that level forever you know or in that trauma forever or in that pain forever so I want to do that and then I'm also working I'm, I'm thinking about I, I'm working on the application whether I'll submit it or not but I want to do a PhD of understanding why young men enter uh, the drug trade um, the illegal drug trade so in five years I suppose if I follow through on that I would like to be nearly finished my PhD so I suppose my aspirations are less political and more increasing the voices and understanding so that I can feed that into the political spaces. Yeah. That's a great question. It's really funny. Every time we do this, people 
send us messages and say this was the best one ever. So I don't know how much this will mean to you, but there's a lot of people saying this is the best one ever. And I've so enjoyed it. And um, as Elizabeth Goldrick has just said, Lynn, you mesmerize me. And I hope you heard that right and you're not offended. <laughs> Thank you. Lynn, 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 Lynn. I think I speak for us all when I say Lynn for president again, because I mean, someone has said, I think it was Deirdre just said that this, this conversation has been a masterclass in emotional intelligence. And I think that's really true. Someone else said that you're too good for politics. And I don't agree because I think we need the likes of you and Eileen Flynn, who's just been made a senator as well. We need you in politics. Um, and I don't know what to say. I mean, the the response tonight has been phenomenal. I'm sitting in the hinge here and I was kind of going, why did I do a big night in when I'm on my holliers? But you know, it has just been such a pleasure to talk to you. You're such a wonderful person. Thank you so much for being the amazing person you are. I hope you have a beautiful night in Enniskillen. And do you have any just final words for us before we go? No, just thank you. It's It's been really lovely. And, and uh, I think for someone that can experience sometimes a lot of vitriol as well, like it's really it's really healing to come into a space where it's actually just support and and some of the girls look like they're on goggle box which has amused me the whole time like Ellen and Katie there look like they've settled in look at them they look like proper proper settled in for an episode of goggle box so yeah I've uh, I've had a lovely evening thank you well we have had a great time Lynn Ruan you're a flipping marvel you're a force of nature please keep going and doing what you're doing we're very grateful Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. It's been amazing. Another great night. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Lynn Ruan, and everyone who joined us on Zoom for The Big Night In. If you want to get in touch, we're on FB, Twitter and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast and we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roshin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, Thanks very much for listening and mind yourselves. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.